And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Merry Christmas and happy all the holidays of this festive season to you. As usual, we're so late that all but New Year's is probably over. But to make up for it, we have a gift for you. The gift of not hearing us talk. It's an all-found objects episode tonight, but that doesn't mean it's not jam-packed with great stuff. Uncle Frank, tell them what we've got. To start with, we have a new episode of Tales of the Frightened and a musical latke recipe. Then later, an H.P. Lovecraft tale of horror and suspense and an exclusive interview with Santa Claus. Then comes a strange narrative from the master, H.G. Wells, some bent holiday songs, commercials, and all sorts of fun. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's, Let's get, get started. started. Mama, I've got the Christmas
Uncle Fred. My favorite heroes are Wonder Woman and my mama. My favorite heroes are the Hulk and Great Aunt Molly. Underoos. They even come out heroes against warm water and detergents. Batgirl and my daddy. Be a Christmas morning hero. Give Underoos the gift that's fun to give. Superman and my dynamite mother. Are you one of the frightened? Careful now. Placed so carelessly against the building wall there. Possibly a sign painter is working there, but but that ladder can only bring you trouble. Yes. It was in the days of medieval history, the days of darkness and gothic gloom and death. Their names were Gaspar and Francois. They were young men, but old in the ways of treachery and villainy. They cut throats for fight, Gaspar and Francois rousted and reveled. They'd been idle for days, and so had taken recourse in drunken debauchery. Their fingers itched for their curious profession. They hungered to ply their wicked trade. And so, when a fat, wealthy merchant left the tavern, after announcing loudly to one and all his riches in his little house at the end of the town, Gaspar and Francois lurched in pursuit. The Paris streets were dark and ill-lit, but the two drunken thieves followed their prey with eyes long used to the darkness. Happily, the distance was not far. Soon the fat merchant turned into a cobbled courtyard and entered a stone, ivy-covered building. Gaspar and Francois waited patiently, and when candlelight flickered in a second-story window, they made their plan. It was the work of a second to climb the wall surrounding the house. And in the darkness of the courtyard, they found a crude wooden ladder propped near the barn door. Gaspar placed it gently against the vines until the top rung rested directly below the fat merchant's window. Francois licked his lips greedily and his dirty fingers tightened about the dagger in his hand. He would make short work of the fat merchant. Gaspar was already mounting the ladder as stealthily as a cat. His knife gleamed in the darkness. He'd very nearly reached the top rung, and there was the fat merchant thrusting a lighted torch into his face. Gaspar but this fat merchant had been rich too long and stayed fat, because he'd the long sword in his fat fingers buried itself in Gaspar's chest up to the hilt. At the bottom of the ladder, Francois panicked and scrambled off the rungs, coming around behind the ladder and hiding underneath it, hugging the wall. He stared up above him as the great bulk of Gaspar's dead body sagged against the rungs. The merchant was shouting for the police at the top of his lungs. Francois was frozen where he's still boiling in his blood. His eyes flashed about the courtyard, looking for the best avenue of escape, and then, balanced on the ladder, toppled through the space of one set of rungs and landed heavily on his partner Francois. Surprise, and a bloody moan bubbled from his dirty throat as the point of the sword jutting from Gaspar's back knifed into his heart. When the police arrived to see what the commotion was, they found Gaspar and Francois huddled behind the ladder, jammed against the wall. 
like two frightened children locked in each other's arms against the cold. And there you are. Legend has it, of course, that Francois walked under a ladder and died terribly, but, well, you've heard the story, and so please be careful. You never can tell, can you? Well, uh, upon my soul, here comes the sign painter to get his ladder, and do you know, my friend, you've been standing under it for the longest time. something really special for your man this Christmas? Call his doctor and schedule his prostate exam. Prostate exams save lives and prostates. Give the gift that says Merry Christmas. I love all of you. Tonight is
Pickman's Model by H.P. Lovecraft. You needn't think I'm crazy, Elliot. Plenty of others have queerer prejudices than this. Why don't you laugh at Oliver's grandfather who won't ride in a motor? If I don't like that damn subway, it's my own business. And we got here more quickly anyhow in the taxi. We'd have had to walk up the hill from Park Street if we'd taken the car. I know I'm more nervous than I was when you saw me last year. But you don't need to hold a clinic over it. There's plenty of reason, God knows. And I fancy I'm lucky to be sane at all. Why the third degree? You didn't used to be so inquisitive. Well, if you must hear it, I don't know why you shouldn't. Maybe you ought to know anyhow. For you kept writing me like a grieved parent when you heard I'd begun to cut the art club and keep away from Pickman. Now that he's disappeared, I go round to the club once in a while, but my nerves aren't what they were. No, I don't know what's become of Pickman, and I don't like to guess. You might have surmised I had some inside information when I dropped him, and that's why I don't want to think where he's gone. Let the police find what they can. It won't be much, judging from the fact that they don't know yet of the old North End place he hired under the name of Peter's. I'm not sure that I could find it again myself. Not that I'd ever try, even in broad daylight. Yes, I do know, or I'm afraid I know, why he maintained it. I'm coming to that. And I think you'll understand, before I'm through, why I don't tell the police. They would ask me to guide them, but I couldn't go back there even if I knew the way. There was something there. And now I can't use the subway or, and you may as well have a good laugh at this too, go down into cellars anymore. I should think you'd have known I didn't drop Pickman for the same silly reasons that fussy old women like Dr. Reed or Joe Minot or Rosworth did. Morbid art doesn't shock me, and when a man has the genius Pickman had, I feel it an honour to know him, no matter what direction his work takes. Boston never had a greater painter than Richard Upton Pickman. I said it at first, and I say it still, and I never swerved an inch either when he showed that ghoul feeding. That, you remember, was when Minot cut him. You know, it takes profound art and profound insight into nature to turn out stuff like Pickman's. Any magazine cover hack can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare or a witch's Sabbath or a portrait of the devil but only a great painter can make such a thing really scare or ring true. That's because only a real artist knows the actual anatomy of the terrible or the physiology of fear, the exact sort of lines and proportions that connect up with latent instincts or hereditary memories of fright and the proper colour contrasts and lighting effects to stir the dormant sense of strangeness. I don't have to tell you why a fusily really brings a shiver while a cheap ghost story frontispiece merely makes us laugh. There's something those fellows catch, beyond life, that they're able to make us catch for a second. Dore had it. Syme has it. Angarola of Chicago has it. And Pickman had it as no man ever had it before, or I hope to heaven ever will again. Don't ask me what it is they see. You know, in ordinary art, there's all the difference in the world between the vital, breathing things drawn from nature or models and the artificial truck that commercial small fry reel off in a bare studio by rule. 
Well, I should say that the really weird artist has a kind of vision which makes models or summons up what amounts to actual scenes from the spectral world he lives in. Anyhow, he manages to turn out results that differ from the pretender's mince pie dreams in just about the same way that the life painter's results differ from the concoctions of a correspondent school cartoonist. If I had ever seen what Pickman saw... But no. Here, let's have a drink before we get any deeper. God, I wouldn't be alive if I'd ever seen what that man, if he was a man, saw. You recall that Pickman's forte was faces. I don't believe anybody since Goya could put so much of sheer hell into a set of features or a twist of expression. And before Goya, you have to go back to the medieval chaps who did the gargoyles and the chimeras on Notre Dame and Mont Saint-Michel. They believed all sorts of things, and maybe they saw all sorts of things too. For the Middle Ages had some curious phases. I remember you were asking Pickman yourself once, the year before you went away, wherever in thunder he got such ideas and visions. Wasn't that a nasty laugh he gave you? It was partly because of that laugh that Reed dropped him. Reed, you know, had just taken up comparative pathology and was full of pompous inside stuff about the biological or evolutionary significance of this or that mental or physical symptom. He said Pickman repelled him more and more every day and almost frightened him towards the last, that the fellow's features and expression were slowly developing in a way he didn't like, in a way that wasn't human. He had a lot of talk about diet and said Pickman must be abnormal and eccentric to the last degree. I suppose you told Reed, if you and he had any correspondence over it, that he'd let Pickman's paintings get on his nerves or harrow up his imagination. I know I told him that myself, then. But keep in mind that I didn't drop Pickman for anything like this. On the contrary, my admiration for him kept growing, for that ghoul-feeding was a tremendous achievement. And you know the club wouldn't exhibit it, and the Museum of Fine Arts wouldn't accept it as a gift, and I can add that nobody would buy it. So Pickman had it right in his house till he went. Now his father has it in Salem. You know Pickman comes of old Salem stock, and had a witch ancestor hanged in 1692. I got into the habit of calling on Pickman quite often, especially after I began making notes for a monograph on weird art. Probably it was his work which put the idea into my head, and anyhow, I found him a mine of data and suggestions when I came to develop it. He showed me all the paintings and drawings he had about, including some pen and ink sketches that would, I verily believe, have got him kicked out of the club if many of the members had seen them. Before long I was pretty nearly a devotee, and would listen for hours like a schoolboy to art theories and philosophic speculations wild enough to qualify him for the Danvers Asylum. My hero-worship, coupled with the fact that people generally were commencing to have less and less to do with him, made him get very confidential with me, and one evening he hinted that if I were fairly close-mouthed and none too squeamish, he might show me something rather unusual, something a bit stronger than anything he had in the house. You know, he said, there are things that won't do for Newbury Street, things that are out of place here and that can't be conceived here anyhow. It's my business to catch the overtones of the soul, and you won't find those in a parvenu set of artificial streets on made land. Back Bay isn't Boston, because it's had no time to pick up memories and attract local spirits. 
If there are any ghosts here, they're the tame ghosts of a salt marsh and a shallow cove. And I want human ghosts, ghosts of beings highly organised enough to have looked on hell and know the meaning of what they saw. The place for an artist to live is the North End. If any aesthete were sincere, he'd put up with the slums for the sake of the mass traditions. God, man, don't you realise that places like that weren't merely made, but actually grew? Generation after generation lived and felt and died there, and in days when people weren't afraid to live and feel and die. Don't you know there was a mill on Copps Hill in 1632, and that half the present streets were laid out by 1650? I can show you houses that have stood two centuries and a half and more. Houses that have witnessed what would make a modern house crumble into powder. What do moderns know of life and the forces behind it? You call the Salem witchcraft a delusion. But I'll wager my four times great-grandmother could have told you things. They hanged her on Gallows Hill, with Cotton Mather looking sanctimoniously on... Mather, damn him, was afraid somebody might succeed in kicking free of this accursed cage of monotony. I wish someone had laid a spell on him or sucked his blood in the night. I can show you a house he lived in, and I can show you another one he was afraid to enter in spite of all his fine, bold talk. He knew things he didn't dare put into that stupid magnalia or that puerile wonders of the invisible world. Look here, do you know the whole North End once had a set of tunnels that kept certain people in touch with each other's houses and the burying ground and the sea? Let them prosecute and persecute above ground. Things went on every day that they couldn't reach and voices laughed at night that they couldn't place. Why, man, out of ten surviving houses built before 1700 and not moved since, I'll wager that in eight I can show you something queer in the cellar. There's hardly a month that you don't read of workmen finding bricked-up arches and wells leading nowhere in this or that old place as it comes down. You could see one near Henchman Street from the Elevated last year. There were witches and what their spells summoned, pirates and what they brought in from the sea, smugglers, privateers, and I tell you, people knew how to live and how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old time. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise man could know. <laughs> and to think of today, in contrast, with such pale pink brains that even a club of supposed artists gets shudders and convulsions if a picture goes beyond the feelings of a Beacon Street tea table. The only saving grace of the present is that it's too damned stupid to question the past very closely. What do maps and records and guidebooks really tell of the North End? <laughs> At a guess, I'll guarantee to lead you to 30 or 40 alleys and networks of alleys north of Prince Street that aren't suspected by ten living beings outside of the foreigners that swarm them. And what do those dagos know of their meaning? No, Thurber, these ancient places are dreaming gorgeously and overflowing with wonder and terror and escapes from the commonplace. And yet there's not a living soul to understand or profit by them. Or rather... There's only one living soul, for I haven't been digging around in the past for nothing. See here, you're interested in this sort of thing. What if I told you that I've got another studio up there, where I can catch the night spirit of antique horror and paint things that I couldn't even think of in Newbury Street? Naturally, I don't tell those cursed old maids at the club 
with Reed, damn him, whispering even as it is that I'm a sort of monster bound down the toboggan of reverse evolution. Yes, Thurber, I decided long ago that one must paint terror as well as beauty from life, so I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives. I've got a place that I don't believe three living Nordic men besides myself have ever seen. It isn't so very far from the elevated as distance goes, but it's centuries away as the soul goes. I took it because of the queer old brick well in the cellar, one of the sort I told you about. The shack's almost tumbling down so that nobody else would live there, and I'd hate to tell you how little I pay for it. The windows are boarded up, but I like that all the better, since I don't want daylight for what I do. I paint in the cellar where the inspiration is thickest, but I've other rooms furnished on the ground floor. A Sicilian owns it, and I've hired it under the name of Peters. Now, if you're game, I'll take you there tonight. I think you'd enjoy the pictures, for, as I said, I've let myself go a bit there. It's no vast tour. I sometimes do it on foot. For I don't want to attract attention with a taxi in such a place. We can take the shuttle at the South Station for Battery Street, and after that the walk isn't much. Well, Elliot, there wasn't much for me to do after that harangue but to keep myself from running instead of walking for the first vacant cab we could sight. We changed to the elevated at the South Station and at about twelve o'clock had climbed down the steps at Battery Street and struck along the old waterfront past Constitution Wharf. I didn't keep track of the cross streets and can't tell you yet which it was we turned up, but I know it wasn't Greenough Lane. When we did turn, it was to climb through the deserted length of the oldest and dirtiest alley I ever saw in my life, with crumbling-looking gables, broken small-paned windows and archaic chimneys that stood out half-disintegrated against the moonlit sky. I don't believe there were three houses in sight that hadn't been standing in Cotton Mather's time. Certainly I glimpsed at least two with an overhang, and once I thought I saw a peaked roofline of the almost-forgotten pre-Gambrel type, though antiquarians tell us there are none left in Boston. From that alley, which had a dim light, we turned to the left into an equally silent and still narrower alley with no light at all, and in a minute made what I think was an obtuse angled bend towards the right in the dark. Not long after this, Pickman produced a flashlight and revealed an antediluvian ten-panelled door that looked damnably worm-eaten. Unlocking it, he ushered me into a barren hallway with what was once splendid dark oak panelling, simple, of course, but thrillingly suggestive of the time of Andros and Phipps and the witchcraft. Then he took me through a door on the left, lighted an oil lamp, and told me to make myself at home. Now, Elliot, I'm what the man in the street would call fairly hard-boiled, but I'll confess that what I saw on the walls of that room gave me a bad turn. They were his pictures, you know, the ones he couldn't paint or even show in Newbury Street. And he was right when he said he had let himself go. Here, have another drink. I need one anyhow. There's no use in my trying to tell you what they were like, because the awful, the blasphemous horror and the unbelievable loathsomeness and moral feeta came from simple touches quite beyond the power of words to classify. There was none of the exotic technique you see in Sydney Syme, None of the trans-Saturnian landscapes and lunar fungi that Clark Ashton Smith uses to freeze the blood. The backgrounds were mostly old churchyards, deep woods, cliffs by the sea, brick tunnels, ancient panelled rooms, 
or simply vaults of masonry. Copse Hill burying ground, which could not be many blocks away from this very house, was a favourite scene. The madness and monstrosity lay in the figures in the foreground, for Pickman's morbid art was preeminently one of demoniac portraiture. These figures were seldom completely human, but often approached humanity in varying degree. Most of the bodies were roughly bipedal, had a forward slumping and a vaguely canine cast. The texture of the majority was a kind of unpleasant rubberiness. Ugh, I can see them now. Their occupations? Well, don't ask me to be too precise. They were usually feeding. I won't say on what. They were sometimes shown in groups in cemeteries or underground passages, and often appeared to be in battle over their prey, or rather their treasure trove. And what damnable expressiveness Pickman sometimes gave the slightest faces of this charnel booty. Occasionally the things were shown leaping through open windows at night, or squatting on the chests of sleepers worrying at their throats. One canvas showed a ring of them baying about a hanged witch on Gallows Hill, whose dead face held a close kinship to theirs. But don't get the idea that it was all this hideous business of theme and setting which struck me faint. I'm not a three-year-old kid. I'd seen much like this before. It was the faces, Elliot, those accursed faces that leered and slavered out of the canvas with the very breath of life. By God, man, I verily believe they were alive. That nauseous wizard had waked the fires of hell in pigment, and his brush had been a nightmare-spawning wand. Give me that decanter, Elliot. There was one thing called the lesson. Heaven pity me that I ever saw it. Listen, can you fancy a squatting circle of nameless dog-like things in a churchyard teaching a small child how to feed like themselves? The price of a changeling, I suppose. You know the old myth about how the weird people leave their spawn in cradles in exchange for the human babes they steal. Pickman was showing what happens to those stolen babes, how they grow up. And then I began to see a hideous relationship in the faces of the human and non-human figures. He was, in all his gradations of morbidity between the frankly non-human and the degradedly human, establishing a sardonic linkage and evolution. The dog things were developed from mortals. And no sooner had I wondered what he made of their own young as left with mankind in the form of changelings than my eye caught a picture embodying that very thought. It was that of an ancient Puritan interior, a heavily beamed room with lattice windows, a settle and clumsy 17th century furniture, with the family sitting about while the father read from the scriptures. Every face but one showed nobility and reverence, but that one reflected the mockery of the pit. It was that of a young man in years, and no doubt belonged to a supposed son of that pious father, but in essence it was the kin of the unclean things. It was their changeling, and in a spirit of supreme irony, Pickman had given the features a very perceptible resemblance to his own. By this time, Pickman had lighted a lamp in an adjoining room, and was politely holding open the door for me, asking me if I would care to see his modern studies. I hadn't been able to give him much of my opinions. I was too speechless with fright and loathing. But I think he fully understood and felt highly complimented. 
And now I want to assure you again, Elliot, that I'm no mollycoddle to scream at anything which shows a bit of a departure from the usual. I'm middle-aged and decently sophisticated, and I guess you saw enough of me in France to know I'm not easily knocked out. Remember, too, that I'd just about recovered my wind and gotten used to those frightful pictures which turned colonial New England into a kind of annex of hell. Well, in spite of all this, that next room forced a real scream out of me, and I had to clutch at the doorway to keep from keeling over. The other chamber had shown a pack of ghouls and witches overrunning the world of our forefathers, but this one brought the horror right into our own daily life. God, how that man could paint. There was a study called Subway Accident, in which a flock of the vile things were clambering up from some unknown catacomb through a crack in the floor of the Boston Street subway and attacking a crowd of people on the platform. Another showed a dance on Copse Hill among the tombs with the background of today. Then there were any number of cellar views, with monsters creeping in through holes and rifts in the masonry and grinning as they squatted behind barrels or furnaces and waited for their first victim to descend the stairs. One disgusting canvas seemed to depict a vast cross-section of Beacon Hill, with ant-like armies of the mephitic monsters squeezing themselves through burrows that honeycombed the ground. Dances in the modern cemeteries were freely pictured, and another conception somehow shocked me more than all the rest, a scene in an unknown vault, where scores of the beasts crowded about one who had a well-known Boston guidebook and was evidently reading aloud. All were pointing to a certain passage, and every face seemed so distorted with epileptic and reverberant laughter that I almost thought I heard the fiendish echoes. The title of the picture was Holmes, Lowell and Longfellow Lie Buried in Mount Auburn. As I gradually steadied myself and got readjusted to this second room of deviltry and morbidity, I began to analyse some of the points in my sickening loathing. In the first place, I said to myself, these things repelled me because of the utter inhumanity and callous crudity they showed in Pickman. The fellow must be a relentless enemy of all mankind to take such glee in the torture of brain and flesh and the degradation of the mortal tenement. In the second place, they terrified because of their very greatness. Their art was the art that convinced. When we saw the pictures, we saw the demons themselves and were afraid of them. And the queer part was that Pickman got none of his power from the use of selectiveness or bizarrery. Nothing was blurred, distorted or conventionalised. Outlines were sharp and lifelike, and details were almost painfully defined. And the faces. It was not any mere artist's interpretation that we saw. It was pandemonium itself, crystal clear in stark objectivity. That was it, by heaven. The man was not a fantasist or romanticist at all. He did not even try to give us the churning prismatic ephemera of dreams, but coldly and sardonically reflected some stable, mechanistic and well-established horror world which he saw fully, brilliantly, squarely and unfalteringly. God knows what that world can have been, or where he ever glimpsed the blasphemous shapes that loped and trotted and crawled through it. But whatever the baffling source of his images, one thing was plain. Pickman was in every sense, in conception and in execution, a thorough, painstaking and almost scientific realist. My host was now leading the way down the cellar to his actual studio, 
and I braced myself for some hellish efforts among the unfinished canvases. As we reached the bottom of the damp stairs, he turned his flashlight to a corner of the large open space at hand, revealing the circular brick curb of what was evidently a great well in the earthen floor. We walked nearer, and I saw that it must be five feet across, with walls a good foot thick and some six inches above the ground level, solid work of the seventeenth century, or I was much mistaken. That, Pickman said, was the kind of thing he had been talking about, an aperture of the network of tunnels that used to undermine the hill. I noticed idly that it didn't seem to be bricked up, and that a heavy disk of wood formed the apparent cover. Thinking of the things this well must have been connected with, if Pickman's wild hints had not been mere rhetoric, I shivered slightly. Then turned to follow him up a step and through a narrow door into a room of fair size provided with a wooden floor and furnished as a studio. An acetylene gas outfit gave the light necessary for work. The unfinished pictures on easels or propped against the walls were as ghastly as the finished ones upstairs and showed the painstaking methods of the artist. Scenes were blocked out with extreme care and pencil guidelines told of the minute exactitude which Pickman used in getting the right perspective and proportions. The man was great, I say it even now, knowing as much as I do. A large camera on a table excited my notice, and Pickman told me that he used it in taking scenes for backgrounds, so that he might paint them from photographs in the studio instead of carting his outfit around the town for this or that view. He thought a photograph quite as good as an actual scene or model for sustained work, and declared he employed them regularly. There was something very disturbing about the nauseous sketches and half-finished monstrosities that leered round from every side of the room, and when Pickman suddenly unveiled a huge canvas on the side away from the light, I could not for my life keep back a loud scream, the second I had emitted that night. It echoed and echoed through the dim vaultings of that ancient and nitrous cellar, and I had to choke back a flood of reaction that threatened to burst out as hysterical laughter. Merciful creator, Elliot, but I don't know how much was real and how much was feverish fancy. It doesn't seem to me that earth can hold a dream like that. It was a colossal and nameless blasphemy, with glaring red eyes, and it held in bony claws a thing that had been a man, gnawing at the head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. Its position was a kind of crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. But damn it all, it wasn't even the fiendish subject that made it such an immortal fountainhead of old panic. Not that, nor the dog face with its pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, flat nose and drooling lips. It wasn't the scaly claws, nor the mould-caked body, nor the half-hooved feet. None of these, though any one of them might well have driven an excitable man to madness. It was the technique, Elliot. The cursed, the impious, the unnatural technique. As I am a living being, I never elsewhere saw the actual breath of life so fused into a canvas. The monster was there. It glared and gnawed and gnawed and glared, and I knew that only a suspension of nature's laws could ever let a man paint a thing like that without a model, without some glimpse of the netherworld which no mortal unsold to the fiend has ever had. Pinned with a thumbtack to a vacant part of the canvas was a piece of paper now badly curled up, probably, I thought, a photograph from which Pickman meant to paint a background as hideous as the nightmare it was to enhance. 
I reached out to uncurl it and look at it, when suddenly I saw Pickman start as if shot. He had been listening with peculiar intensity ever since my shocked scream had waked unaccustomed echoes in the dark cellar, and now he seemed struck with a fright which, though not comparable to my own, had in it more of the physical than of the spiritual. He drew a revolver and motioned me to silence, then stepped out into the main cellar and closed the door behind him. I think I was paralysed for an instant. Imitating Pickman's listening, I fancied I heard a faint scurrying sound somewhere, and a series of squeals or bleats in a direction I couldn't determine. I thought of huge rats and shuddered. Then there came a subdued sort of clatter which somehow set me all in goose flesh, a furtive, groping kind of clatter, though I can't attempt to convey what I mean in words. It was like heavy wood falling on stone or brick. Wood on brick? What did that make me think of? It came again and louder. There was a vibration as if the wood had fallen farther than it had fallen before. After that followed a sharp grating noise, a shouted gibberish from Pickman, and the deafening discharge of all six chambers of a revolver, fired spectacularly as a lion tamer might fire in the air for effect. A muffled squeal or squawk, and a thud. Then more wood and brick grating, a pause, and the opening of the door, at which I'll confess I started violently. Pickman reappeared with his smoking weapon, cursing the bloated rats that infested the ancient well. A deuce knows what they eat, Thurber, he grinned, for those archaic tunnels touched graveyard and witch-den and sea-coast. But whatever it is, they must have run short, for they were devilish anxious to get out. Your yelling stirred them up, I fancy. Better be cautious in these old places. Our rodent friends are the one drawback, though I sometimes think they're a positive acid by the way of atmosphere and colour. Well, Elliot, that was the end of the night's adventure. Pickman had promised to show me the place, and heaven knows he had done it. He led me out of that tangle of alleys in another direction, it seems, for when we sighted a lamppost, we were in a half-familiar street with monotonous rows of mingled tenement blocks and old houses. Charter Street, it turned out to be, but I was too flustered to notice just where we hit it. We were too late for the elevated and walked back downtown through Hanover Street. I remember that wall. We switched from Tremont up Beacon, and Pickman left me at the corner of Joy where I turned off. I never spoke to him again. Why did I drop him? Don't be impatient. Wait till I ring for coffee. We've had enough of the other stuff, but I for one need something. No, it wasn't the paintings I saw in that place, though I'll swear they were enough to get him ostracised in nine-tenths of the homes and clubs of Boston, and I guess you won't wonder now why I have to steer clear of subways and cellars. It was something I found in my coat the next morning. You know, the curled-up paper tacked to the frightful canvas in the cellar. The thing I thought was a photograph of some scene he meant to use as a background for that monster. That last scare had come while I was reaching to uncurl it, and it seems I had vacantly crumpled it into my pocket. But here's the coffee. Uh, take it black, Elliot, if you're wise. Yes, that paper was the reason I dropped Pickman. Richard Upton Pickman, the greatest artist I have ever known, and the foulest being that ever leapt the bounds of life into the pits of myth and madness. Elliot, old Reed was right. He wasn't strictly human. 
Either he was born in strange shadow, or he'd found a way to unlock the forbidden gate. It's all the same now, for he's gone back into the fabulous darkness he loved to haunt. Here, let's have the chandelier going. Don't ask me to explain or even conjecture about what I burned. Don't ask me either what lay behind that mole-like scrambling Pickman was so keen to pass off as rats. There are secrets, you know, which might have come down from old Salem times, and Cotton Mather tells even stranger things. You know how damned lifelike Pickman's paintings were, how we all wondered where he got those faces. Well, that paper wasn't a photograph of any background at all. What it showed was simply the monstrous being he was painting on that awful canvas. It was the model he was using, and its background was merely the wall of the cellar studio in minute detail. But by God, Elliot, it was a photograph from life.
Just look at these lights. The insulation's been cut, exposing bare wire. And light sockets have been cracked. These lights might cause a fire or electric shock. It takes only a minute to inspect them before they're put up. Safety experts warn against using lights in this condition because when it comes to safety, it's the, the little, little things thing that count. A holiday public service message on behalf of Underwriters Laboratories. Now a guest from last month's podcast, Corla Pandit, playing both the organ and piano at the same time. His rendition of White Christmas. idea driving through the police gate. And look, what is this, a gag? Now, what's the idea? Come on, let us... I'm a studio policeman. Oh, stop. What's the gag? I'm making some extra money. For what? What do you need, money? I need plenty of money, Abbott. I need plenty of money so I can go out and buy some more Christmas seals. But, but, Lou, we buy an awful lot of Christmas seals. I know. We buy plenty of Christmas seals every year, Abbott. I know that. But we're not still buying enough. I found out half a million people that still have TB. Tuberculosis. You bet your life. Yes. They need plenty of money. Mm. Plenty of money for these scientists. 
for their research. Plenty of money so no. they can go out and take plenty of chess x-rays. Mr. Abbott, yes. Mr. Costello, I've known you two fellows for some years, and that's the first sensible thing I've ever heard you say. Abbott, how long you had the new chauffeur? Oh, he's been with me quite a while. You know, he's raising funds to buy these Christmas seals, too. He is? Oh, he's very interested in them. Uh, uh, tell him, Charles. Hi. Uh, sure, I'm raising funds to buy more Christmas seals. And don't you forget, Christmas seals pay for education. And they help pay for important services for patients. We've all got to fight tuberculosis. Ladies and gentlemen, won't you please, please send in your Christmas seal checks... Right away soon, buy plenty of Christmas seals. Under the mistletoe Make it a Merry Christmas Tell me you love me so Some people dream of sleigh bells Jingling in the snow But my only dream is this Just as it's Christmas Give us a kiss I say, I always get a lot of Christmas presents. Mr. Santa Claus is very good indeed. Yes, I get a lot of chocolates and mince pies. But there's one thing that I need. Give us a kiss for Christmas. Under the mistletoe. Let's make it a Merry Christmas. Tell me you love me so Some people dream of sleigh bells Jingling in the snow But my only dream is this Just as it's Christmas Give us a kiss I haven't used the handkerchief from last year And the cardigan was Someone else's prize if you really want to be an angel this year, here's the present I would prize. I say, give us a kiss for Christmas. Come on, under the mistletoe. Make it a merry Christmas. Tell me you love me so. Some people dream of sleigh bells. But my only dream is this Just as this Christmas Give us a kiss Good evening, I'm Spike Williams Tonight we're going after a most unusual story For many years a kindly jovial stout man Wearing a white beard and a red suit Has made his appearance each Christmas Eve And distributes gifts and presents by coming down the chimney He's a man we all look forward to eagerly Especially the kiddies well, now let's check with the man himself for the true story. 
Welcome, Santa Claus. Uh, call me Santa. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. All right, Santa. Now, here's my first question. Now, let's be nice and friendly. I like you, you like me. Nothing embarrassing. Simple questions like, what size chimney is the best fit? Or do I sleep with my beard over or under the blanket? All right. Do you sleep with your beard over or under the blanket? Yes, and then again, no. You see, during the time of the trade in the form of a film, I put my beard in curlers. Sometimes when we have a trade, but in the summertime, the beard is over the blanket. And in the winter, when a when a trade, I sleep with the beard under the blanket. I'm just a bit confused. I do you under? Hey, say you out there, dancer, prancer. Stop ringing those bells! You, you see, Spike, I've got my reindeer and sled outside, double parked. And they don't come up to see the cops are having a ticket for the fine, and there's no money to pay with your fellas. Most people call you Santa Claus. But in other parts of the world, you masquerade under the name of Chris Kringle and St. Nicholas. Now, what are you trying to hide by using an alias? I'm very glad you asked me that. You see, in the United States, we have a saw for thrills of Santa Claus. In England, where the spies have been filled, it's Chris Kringle. In Greece, there's a very fine Santa, it's St. Nicholas. In China, the Chinese fame is Hu Lai Dei And that is why, my dear fellow, the Giants moved to San Francisco. The Giants? I didn't ask you a question about baseball. Well, think one up about baseball. What do you expect me to do? Figure out the answers and the questions? Uh, quiet, Dunder, quiet, Blitzen. All they keep ringing is bells, bells. So help me, next year I'll get myself a horn. Get a hold of yourself, Santa Claus. Let's proceed. Now, in December 1954, oh. there was a rumor going around, and it was frequently heard on the radio that a little boy named Jimmy Boyd was singing and telling everybody, I saw Mummy kissing Santa Claus. Yes. Oh, that's a little sneaky question. Santa, this rumor of you kissing Jimmy's mummy was made into a popular record, and it even made Variety's bestseller list. Isn't that a fact? When Variety said that the record was sold in country to the Hatton Faith, we didn't tell them what they really meant was that there is a source which every and made for our flower, and you agree, of course. Yes, yes. but I would phrase it a little differently. Oh. One thing I can't understand is why, in this modern age of transportation, you still use reindeer. Have you thought of updating your reindeer? I'm very glad you asked me that. Updating? That's good matters to have in your thinking. <laughs> now, talking off the top of my head, I'd say that the reindeer has a thought of a filter. Now, in an order of the gasoline, sometimes one feed expensive and you have three. But a reindeer, the upkeep is very cheap. They feed them grass for 12 and hay and pizza pie with all the politics. I see. Well, what about using an airplane or helicopter for speed? 12 with the speed of it and get my beard caught in the propeller? I hadn't thought of that. Uh, do you mind telling me where you got your reindeer? I won them from an old Eskimo trapper, Madman Mungaloo. You expect me to believe that? Well, force yourself. Cut it out, cut it out. Stata, I must have serious answers from you. Look, this is a happy time of the year. Just take it from me. Let's talk about nice, pleasant things. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Let's sing and dance and make good cheer. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas and presents for all. Santa, I suppose you get a lot of mail. Well, there's a lot of mail in the story I have a chase for Tatman. As much as that? Yes. And one little girl wrote me a poem on what she wanted. What did she write? To those that say I find a plan and leave all the very part that has made me Tatman. Not through the world, but definitely and crawled and tied and tied and tied. Is that the complete poem? No, just the title. Santa, you claim to leave a present for each and every child in the country, right? Exactly. My staff has checked these figures with the Census Bureau. 
There are 43,567,890 children in the United States. Do you expect me to believe you deliver a present in one night to each child? Why, of course we try to try to believe it with a child on the side. I can yeah. see that. But how do you get 43,567,890 presents on one sled? Simple. Big glove compartment. Oh, ho, ho. If you must know, I don't believe in Santa Claus. Well, we all know. What? I don't believe in Santa Claus. You don't believe in Santa Claus? No. Why, more stories have been written about me than any other person you know. I'd like to see some documentary proof. Why, a fellow named Moore, over 125 years ago, wrote, It was the night before Christmas. When all to the town, that a creature Santa, was standing. Santa, I'm very sorry, we have to go now. Santa, Santa, we've got to go. Dunder and Vincent are calling you. In the hope that they Santa, I believe you, but we've got to go. Good night, Santa. Good night, everybody. And Merry Christmas to one and all. Sabea, the Ketahit, 
wonderful new idea for Christmas fun. Now you can turn your home into a window wonderland with a magic of glass wax and a set of these easy to use cut out stencils for glass wax. Why, it's so easy a child can do it. Just pour regular glass wax into a dish, dip in a sponge, and simply dab over one of the stencil designs. Put a jolly Santa like this on your windows in a matter of seconds. Or Christmas trees, wreaths, Santa and his reindeer, all the lovely signs of Christmas that will make your home a window wonderland. All through the magic of glass wax and a set of these cutout stencils for glass wax. Buy your set of Christmas stencils wherever you buy regular glass wax. Beautiful holiday designs to help make a window wonderland at your home this Christmas. Monday. Merry Christmas! The Peanuts gang is filled with the Christmas spirit until... What a treat! It's a Charlie Brown Christmas, Monday at 8, 7 Central. We now return to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer.
hearts overflowing with cheer. It's that wonderful season we all find so pleasing. The Toys R Us time of year. World's biggest toy stores, Toys R Us. Toys biggest selection, Toys R Us. One from mom and daddy, one grandma came to bring. One from Uncle Charlie, and one from Burger King. It's the Burger King doll. This Christmas, your kids can have this colorful, cuddly Burger King doll free when you buy a book of ten gift certificates for five dollars. Add an extra touch to Christmas with a gift from Burger King. The Magic Shop. By H. G. Wells. I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice. A shop window of alluring little objects, magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning. Gip hauled me by the finger right up to the window, and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about, just out of patent incubators. But there it was, sure enough. I had fancied it was down nearer the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Hoban, always over the way, and a little inaccessible it had been, with something of the mirage in its position. But here it was now, quite indisputably, and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. If I was rich, said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, I'd buy myself that, and that which was the crying baby, very human, and that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, buy one and astonish your friends. Anything, said Gip, will disappear under one of those cones. I have read about it in a book, and their dadda is the vanishing halfpenny. Only they've put it this way up so's we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way. Only, you know, quite unconsciously, he lugged my finger doorward, and he made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jessie, he said, thoughtful as ever of others. It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles, I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gip made no answer, but his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this, it was a magic shop. And all the prancing precedence Gip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burthen of the conversation to me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit, and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger in papier-mâché on the glass case that covered the low counter, 
a grave, kind-eyed tiger that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls in various sizes, and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a draught. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I suppose, came in. At any rate, there he was behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man with one ear larger than the other, and a chin like the toe-cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure? he said, spreading his long, magic fingers on the glass case. And so, with a start, we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Leisure to man? he asked. Mechanical? Domestic? Anything amusing? said I. Um, said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then, quite distinctly, he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers. But I had not expected it here. That's good, I said, with a laugh. Isn't it, said the shopman. Gip stretched out his disengaged hand to take this object, and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will that be? I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them, he picked one out of his elbow as he spoke, free. He produced another from the back of his neck, and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded his glass ball sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman, who smiled. You may have those, too, said the shopman, and if you don't mind, one from my mouth. So. Gip counselled me mutely for a moment, and then, in a profound silence, put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course, it's cheaper. In a way, the shopman said, though we pay in the end, but not so heavily, as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop. Not for genuine magic goods, sir. I don't know if you noticed our inscription, The Genuine Magic Shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with his finger on the word, and added, There is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know, are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline, 
We keep it rather a secret, even at home. But Gip received it in unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be faintly heard, Nya, I wanna go in there, Dada, I wanna go in there, Nya! And then the accents of a downtrodden parent, urging consolations and propitiations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman, always. For that sort of child. And as he spoke, we had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white face pallid from sweet-eating and over-sapid food, and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist, pouring at the enchanted pain. "'It's no good, sir,' said the shopman, as I moved with my natural helpfulness doorward, and presently the spoilt child was carried off, howling. "'How did you manage that?' I said, breathing a little more freely. "'Magic,' said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand. And behold, sparks of coloured fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself to Gip, before you came in, that you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes. Gip, after a gallant effort, said, Yes, it's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter, he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of the empty hat with the springs. String! And behold, his mouth was a string-box from which he drew an unending thread, which, when he had tied his parcel, he bit off, and it seemed to me swallowed the ball of string. And then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist's dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing-wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat-breast, and packed it, and also the crying baby very human. I handed each parcel to Gip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent. He was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then with a start I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter, and went, I fancy, into a cardboard box behind the papier-mâché tiger. Tut-tut! said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress, careless bird, and, as I live, nesting. He shook my hat, and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, talking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside as well as out. Politely, of course, but with a certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir. Not you, of course, in particular. Nearly every customer. Astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, 
and still his voice went on and on. We none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors, whited sepulchres? His voice stopped. Exactly like when you hit a neighbour's gramophone with a well-aimed brick. The same instant silence, and the rustle of the paper stopped, and everything was still. Have you done with my hat? I said after an interval. There was no answer. I stared at Gip, and Gip stared at me, and there were our distortions in the magic mirrors looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. Will you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note, I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip round the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat on the floor, and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit, lost in meditation, and looking as stupid and crumpled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, and the rabbit lolloped a lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip, in a guilty whisper. What is it, Gip? said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Pussy, he said, with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do Gip a magic. And his eyes followed it as it squeezed through a door I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling still, but his eye met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You would like to see our showroom, sir? he said, with an instant suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish. All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his flexible hands together. And that is the best. Nothing in the place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir. I felt him pull at something that clung to my coat sleeve, and then I saw he held a little, wriggling, red demon by the tail. The little creature bit and fought and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind a counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted India rubber. But for the moment and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty, biting bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, and indicating Gip and the red demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? None of ours probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever, astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares. And then to Gip, 
Do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied there. He turned to this astonishing tradesman with mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword? he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the fingers. It renders the bearer invincible in battle against anyone under eighteen. Half a crown to seven and sixpence, according to size. These panoplies on cards are for juvenile knights errant, and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, Daddy, gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had got Gip now. He had got him away from my finger. He had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock, and nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw with a qualm of distrust and something very like jealousy that Gip had hold of this person's finger, as usually he has hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff, really good faked stuff, still. I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt, when the time came to go, we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long rambling place, that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, and with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing, indeed, were these, that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopman showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very, very valuable boxes of soldiers that all came alive directly you took off the lid and said, I myself haven't a very quick ear, and it was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, he has his mother's ear, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment Gip had made them all alive again. You'll take that box? asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case it would need a trust magnate. Dear heart, no! And the shopman swept the little men back again, shut the lid, waved the box in the air. And there it was, in brown paper, tied up, and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is the genuine magic, he said, the real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that he fell to showing Gip tricks. Odd tricks and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside out, and there was the dear little chap nodding his busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did not attend as well as I might. Hey, presto, said the magic shopman, and then would come the clear, small, hey, presto, of the boy. But I was distracted by other things. It was being borne in upon me just how tremendously rum this place was, it was, so to speak, inundated by a sense of rumness. There was something, a little rum about the fixtures even, 
about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them straight, they went askew and moved about and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back. And the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw, I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch. And, you know, he was leaning against a pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner, until it was like a long, red, flexible whip. Like a thing in a nightmare it was, he flourished it about and flung it forth, as a fly-fisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip mustn't see him. I turned about, and there was Gip, quite preoccupied with the shopman, and thinking no evil. They were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and the shopman was holding a sort of big drum in his hand. "'Hide and seek, Dadda!' cried Gip. You're he! And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw what was up directly. Take that off, I cried, this instant. You'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman with the unequal ears did so without a word, and held the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness, and the little stool was vacant. In that instant my boy had utterly disappeared, you know perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand out of the unseen and grips your heart about. You know it takes your common self away and leaves you tense and deliberate, neither slow nor hasty, neither angry nor afraid. So it was with me. I came up to this grinning shopman and kicked his stool aside. Stop this folly, I said. Where is my boy? You see, he said, still displaying the drum's interior. There is no deception. I put out my hand to grip him, and he eluded me by a dexterous movement. I snatched again, and he turned from me and pushed open a door to escape. Stop, I said, and he laughed, receding. I leapt after him, into utter darkness, thud. Lord bless my heart, I didn't see you coming, sir. I was in Regent Street, and I had collided with a decent-looking working man and a yard away, perhaps, and looking a little perplexed with himself, was Gip. There was some sort of apology, and then Gip had turned and come to me with a bright little smile, as though for a moment he had missed me, and he was carrying four parcels in his arm. He secured immediate possession of my finger. For the second, I was rather at a loss. I stared round to see the door of the magic shop, and behold, it was not there. There was no door, no shop, nothing. Only the common pilaster between the shop where they sell pictures and the window with the chicks. 
I did the only thing possible in that mental tumult. I walked straight to the curbstone and held up my umbrella for a cab. Ansoms, said Gip, in a note of culminating exultation. I helped him in, recalled my address with an effort, and got in also. Something unusual proclaimed itself in my tailcoat pocket, and I felt and discovered a glass ball. With a petulant expression I flung it into the street. Gib said nothing. For a space neither of us spoke. Dada, said Gib at last, that was a proper shop. I came round with that to the problem of just how the whole thing had seemed to him. He looked completely undamaged. So far, good. He was neither scared nor unhinged. He was simply tremendously satisfied with the afternoon's entertainment. And there in his arms were the four parcels. Confound it, what could be in them? Um, I said. Little boys can't go to shops like that every day. He received this with his usual stoicism, and for a moment I was sorry I was his father and not his mother, and so couldn't suddenly there, quorum publico, in our hansom, kiss him. After all, I thought, the thing wasn't so very bad. But it was only when we opened the parcels that I really began to be reassured. Three of them contained boxes of soldiers, quite ordinary lead soldiers, but of so good a quality as to make Gip altogether forget that originally these parcels had been magic tricks of the only genuine sort. And the fourth contained a kitten, a little living white kitten, in excellent health and appetite and temper. I saw this unpacking with a sort of provisional relief. I hung about in the nursery for quite an unconscionable time. That happened six months ago, and now I am beginning to believe it is all right. The kitten had only the magic, natural to all kittens, and the soldiers seem as steady a company as any colonel could desire. And Gip? The intelligent parent will understand that I have to go cautiously with Gip. But I went so far as this one day, I said. How would you like your soldiers to come alive, Gip, and march about by themselves? Mine do, said Gip. I just have to say a word I know before I open the lid. Then they march about alone? Oh, quite, Dada. I shouldn't like them if they didn't do that. I displayed no unbecoming surprise, and since then I have taken occasion to drop in upon him once or twice, unannounced, when the soldiers were about but so far I have never discovered them performing in anything like a magical manner. I displayed no unbecoming surprise, and since then I have taken occasion to drop in upon him once or twice unannounced, but so far I have never discovered them performing in anything like a magical manner. It's so difficult to tell. There's also a question of finance. I have an incurable habit of paying bills. I have been up and down Regent Street several times looking for that shop. I am inclined to think, indeed, that in that matter, honour is satisfied, and that since Gip's name and address are known to them, I may very well leave it to these people, whoever they may be, to send in their bill in their own time.
Merry Christmas, you suckers, you miserable men. That old festive season is with you again. You'll be spending your money on cartloads of junk. And from here to New Year, you'll be drunk as a skunk. Merry Christmas, you suckers, it's perfectly clear that you fall for it all a bit sooner each year. If it goes on like this, you will find pretty soon you're singing White Christmas as early as June. This Christmas card racket will cost you a packet each season, it seems to expand. The cards are so clever, though nothing whatever to do with the subject in hand. You'll be taking the kids round the multiple stores to be frightened to death by some old Santa Claus. Then it's parties with spirits and vino and beer. Merry Christmas, you suckers, and a happy new year. Merry Christmas, you suckers, you bleary-eyed lot. You'll never get rid of that headache you've got. But I hope you feel splendid, you certainly should. With your stomachs distended with turkey and pud. Merry Christmas, you suckers, jump into your cars. Roar off to your neighbors to sink a few jars. Though your vision is double, just keep smiling through. There are others in trouble a lot worse than you. Beyond any question, acute indigestion will plague you and make you unwell. You won't take the warning, you'll wake up each morning undoubtedly feeling like hell. But stick to it, suckers, go swallow a pill. For this is the season of peace and goodwill, while we patiently wait for that nuclear blast. Merry Christmas, you suckers, it may be your last. Well, that was depressing, but don't listen to that guy. We here at SISG hope you enjoyed the holiday season so far and wish you much happiness during whatever's left of it. And now, Uncle Frank, what's our last thing? On December 5th, 1872, the British ship De Gracia discovered a two-masted vessel adrift 400 miles east of the Azores. It turned out to be the Mary Celeste, a ship that had left a month before, eight days before the De Gracia, from New York City. It should have been in dock in Genoa, Italy by now. When the Mary Celeste was boarded, it was found that the entire crew was missing. Stranger still, there was no sign of struggle, and the cargo, the crew's belongings, and six months' supply of food and water were left on board. The captain's log, which had also been left, recorded nothing unusual. The Celeste lifeboat was missing, and some seawater was found sloshing below deck, but the ship was not in any danger of sinking. What exactly happened remains a mystery to this day. So tonight, we leave you with this morbid tune in honor of the mystery. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See See you you next month. month.